Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we will be discussing the mysterious Dyatlov Pass incident, where nine Russian hikers who were all mysteriously killed when walking into the remote Ural Mountains in 1959. Going to do this similar to uh, the last episode, MH370, hopefully you've listened to that, and basically it's, it's another one that has a bit of a mysterious element as part of it. So I want to do it similar in terms of running through like the definite facts that we know. And then once we've got the facts down, we can then try and go into some of the theories and see whether any of them actually make any sense. But yeah, it's another mystery this week. So you'll have to get your get your thinking caps on. This story is around a group of hikers who were all students in Russia and they went hiking uh, in in 1959 and basically they all ended up being killed in a a mysterious way that is is quite hard to explain. So it started out with a group of 10 and they were all in their early 20s. They were all students at Ural Polytechnic Institute and At the time that this happened, it was quite an interesting time in Russian history and society. And it was an exciting time for for students because it meant that uh, they had the opportunity to go to uni, to to further study and train. Uh, It was known as the Thor because they'd had a lot of stressful years with the war and with uh, Stalin. So it was quite an exciting time to be a student. And they were, yeah, really enjoying their time at university. They were studying uh, mainly sciences and also looking into new areas. So uh, a lot of them were studying new fields like radio engineering uh, as part of their degree. And the group of 10, the students, they were all very uh, proficient hikers and they were all working towards their hiking certifications. So they'd done a lot of hikes in the area. They, you know, were pretty experienced in terms of what they, what to expect and and how to, how to, you know, live and and manage situations out in the wild. So they weren't, they weren't new to this. They'd done a lot of hiking previously. And they'd actually, they'd passed their grade two. And at the end of this trip that they were planning to go on, then they would end up passing their grade three. So they were almost at their grade three. And this hike would be the one that, that would get them over that achievement. And so their plan for this trip was they were going to hike deep into the Ural Mountains uh, and and summit one of those mountains. And they would ski, kind of cross-country skiing as they go. They were hiking in winter, so it was going to be very cold. And they would camp uh, as they went, uh, often a lot of camping on like the slopes of the mountains uh, and, and out in the wild. And this group was led by a man called Igor Dyatlov. And the group itself was made up of eight men and two women, And most were all, you know, they were all students together. So they were all friends um, and they were all all around about the same age, except for one one man who was a friend of Igor's who was who was a bit older. So he was in his late 30s and he decided to join the trip because he had missed another trip. So he was a late addition to the group, uh, but joined them as they started heading out into the wild. So the hikers left their town, which uh, at the time was called, uh, at the time now is called Yekaterinburg, which is quite 
not rural Russia, but you know, it, it's further towards Siberia than where Moscow and St. Petersburg and stuff is. And they started heading out into the mountains. And the area that they were going to travel through and the area that they were going to hike in were pretty sparse. Uh, it they didn't really it didn't really have like huge amounts of large towns. Uh, the main occupants were the native Manzi people, and they were indigenous people in the area, and they would herd reindeers in in the region. So they were all quite prevalent around there, but they, it wasn't it wasn't big towns. And the area that they were walking through also uh, was an area where previously there had been a lot of prison camps, uh, what they would call or the collective name of of the gulags were. And so these prison camps were really horrific and were where the uh, communist government would hold a lot of their political prisoners and general prisoners and they would live in, you know, kind of horrific conditions and they would be tortured and it was a really horrible place. So there were quite a few of these prison camps around. Uh, by this point, most of them had gone, uh, but there was still, you know, the odd like dilapidated building and, and that kind of thing through through the area that they were hiking. Otherwise, so other than that and the Mansi people, there were occasionally like small working groups uh, in the area as well. Uh, so especially those because it was quite forested, especially those that were logging and were, uh, yeah, cutting down trees. So the group of 10 headed out and travelled by train to the town of Ivdel. And then they continued on by bus to a small settlement near the mountains, which was at the time just called Sector 41. Uh, and that was a, a woodcutting settlement. So that was their last time where they they interacted and where they stayed with other people uh, they bought fresh bread from the woodcutters and they stayed together with them in in some of the small huts in their little area and at this point one of the group of 10 yuri yudin decided that he wasn't feeling well enough and he wasn't going to carry on with the hike so started out with 10 but he decided to turn around at this point he had a lot of underlying health conditions and it just didn't want to slow the group down didn't want to you know mean that they were having to wait for him or anything like that so he decided to turn around at that point which in hindsight was obviously a very smart decision on his point um though obviously he didn't know that at the time but he leaves at this point when they're in sector 41 and he uh, takes a ride with them back to the train station and goes back so we we know everything that's happened up to this point in in a lot of detail because he was there and he has now come back to society and, and fed back what happened up until that point from here we do know with like relative certainty some of the things that happened. There were a lot of photographs taken, which uh, is very cool. They were very, um, you know, they're still in black and white and they're quite grainy and stuff, but there were some really great photos that a lot of the group were taking. And they were also, all were very quite prolific diary writers. So we've got a lot of written uh, evidence that we can we can take and read to to understand where their journey went from here. So what we know from here is that from that last town, uh, the group headed out on their skis to, to start the, the wilderness part of their trek. And they were skiing through pretty tough terrain. So we're talking uh, February, uh, late January at this point. So middle of winter, really, in Russia, in a very cold area. So it was full of snow and they were skiing. They were trying to ski on like frozen streams because they were a little bit smoother uh, rather than having to kind of fight through some of the snow banks. But 
yeah, it wasn't, it was pretty hard going, it sounds like. And they were very thankful because they often found tracks from the Manzi uh, and where where the, so, the snow was softer. Um, and the, the group, they wrote in their diaries a lot about how fascinated they were with the with the Manzi people and about how they had uh, like carved uh, signs into trees as they go past and, and that kind of thing. So it sounds as though they were enjoying themselves. It sounds like they were in pretty good spirits that the group was friendly with each other uh, and that yeah it had been going well so far they carried on through this wooded area forest until they got to the mountain that they wanted to climb and ironically the mountain uh, that they were going to climb literally translates into the mountain of the dead or dead mountain so that didn't bode well <laughs> but obviously not not so much at the time uh, so they were going to head up that mountain and their plan was to it would probably take them a couple of days to hike up to the top uh, turn around and then come back down so what they decided to do was at the edge of the forest, uh, they did a stash. So they took uh, a lot of their equipment, stashed it in in the forest in a safe place so that they could uh, have a lot lighter packs, head on up the mountain, do do the, the hard bit of their trek and then come back and pick it up. And that would then sustain them on the way back. So they, they did that, put, put everything, uh, everything stashed and then carried on hiking. This is kind of where we, where we then start going to what exactly happened so the group clearly started to hike up the mountain uh it was clear that the weather conditions were not great uh so like i said middle of winter freezing so they they started to hike up and i mean we don't know but basically they decided to to set up camp kind of halfway up this slope and this might have been because they they didn't get as far as they wanted to maybe they were planning to to camp on the top but they didn't make it or you know they they didn't want to lose the height that they had had made so that's why they decided to camp there basically it was a bit of an odd place to camp because it was kind of like in the middle of an exposed open slope but they decided to camp there and they cut into the slope to create like a smooth base for setting up their their tent so it had mountain was obviously sloped and they kind of chopped chopped into the into the snow so that they had a a flat platform that they could put their tent on and they had basically one very big tent uh it was and it it allowed all nine of them to sleep in it so it, it was a pretty you know significantly large enough tent that all nine of them could fit in with all of their belongings and and basically they put up the the tent it's clear that they settled down inside so they took off their shoes took off their boots took off some of their outer layers laid all that out to dry uh they got the camping stove the camping stove was out uh so yeah they they kind of got themselves settled and then clearly something then went very badly wrong the facts as we know them up until this point what we then we then know what happened next in terms of what what was found but we don't know what happened to the hikers from then and that's the that's the big the big question which is has fascinated so many people so when the group left it was agreed that Dyatlov would send a telegram from one of the towns on the way back uh, to to Yuri and to, to their families to let them know that they've come back safely. And the agreed date of that was the 12th of February. Yuri Yudin made it back to, to the town and 
initially no one was worried when the 12th of February kind of came and went. Obviously it was a time where there wasn't as much connectivity obviously as we have now so the fact that they were late well, didn't kind of cause huge amounts of alarm straight away. It was just assumed that they maybe they had been delayed, maybe they'd taken a different route and it was just taking them a bit longer. Be one of them had had a sprained ankle, which meant that they hiked slower. You know, there, there, there was a lot of reasons why they could potentially be late. So at first, no one really worried. They just kind of kept waiting. But as the days went by, obviously, the families just got increasingly worried. They started kind of flagging like, oh, something's clearly gone wrong. We need to go and look for them. But a search wasn't organized. So it was only on the 20th when the search and rescue teams actually headed out along their route to see if they could find them. We're talking eight days after they were potentially due back. The thing is, is that they knew kind of their route. Obviously, they knew like where where Yuri had got to and then they knew where the, they knew where the top, like the mountain that they were going to, but they didn't know the exact route that they would take there. So it took them uh, six days. So it took them until the 26th of February until they found the route that they assumed that they had taken. They found the tracks that they were looking for. And then, uh, yeah, on the 26th, they stumbled on the tent. And so as soon as that group found the tent, it was pretty clear that something sinister had happened. So the sides of the tent were torn and it looked as though they had been like cut through so like cut with a knife and it was only after after they'd done a bit more analysis on the tent but it then became clear that the tent had been cut from the inside so clearly the campers had been in the tent and then they had cut their way out uh, either because they couldn't get out the the normal way it had been blocked or, or, or for some reason or they were in such a rush that they couldn't you know manage all the buttons and the toggles so they literally just cut their way out As soon as that happened, it was clear something had gone wrong. When the searchers looked inside the tent then, it was still full of all the hikers' belongings. So they could still see in the tent, like, all their shoes were still laid out, all their, you know, their clothes, their backpacks and everything were still there. Um, and And then they could see that there were basically lots of footprints leading from the tent itself. The searchers followed those tracks that they could see. And around one and a half kilometers away from the tent down the hill towards the forested area, they found the the first two bodies. And so these were of the two other Yuris and they were found near the remains of a small fire. So they presumably had made a fire and the, the branches of the trees all around them were broken. So clearly they had pulled off the branches and started to make a fire. It was quite common in that day with hiking that they would sew matches like into their clothes so that they would always have them, which is very smart. So clearly they had uh, access to some matches and they had started to to start this fire. But as you can imagine, in this time in in a very cold area you know everything's wet and damp and and finding like good fire fodder is probably not very easy and they were also found without any shoes on and they only had quite like quite a small amount of clothes on so we're talking kind of underwear um that that type of thing and when these two were analyzed it was then determined that both had died from hypothermia so yeah they had both died from hypothermia 
which is ironic because I am recording this on the hottest day ever in the UK and I am literally melting. So opposite to clearly what they they had to had to manage. So from there, they continued to find uh, some bodies of the climbers. So they found Dyatlov next. He was about 300 metres away from the fire in the direction of the tent. And again, he had no shoes on. He had kind of an odd array of clothes on in terms of what he was wearing. And he was also determined to have died from hypothermia. So potentially he had been with the group by the fire, but then had chosen to uh, try and get further towards the tent. One of the women was found next, Zina, and she, again, was another few hundred metres away from Dyatlov, again, further towards the tent, and she was found in similar uh, form to the others in terms of clothing and, yeah, injuries. Finally, they found one more body. So they found the body of Rustam, and he had more clothes on, so he had uh, some outer layers on, uh, but he was found with more injuries, so he had some fractures to his head as well. But even with that, both of these were determined to have died through hypothermia. So at this point, we've got five out of the nine bodies, but the further four were just nowhere to be seen and, and there was no real hint as to where they potentially were. So it was only two months later when the snow really started to fall Um, sorry, when the snow really started to thaw, that they were found. And that was because they were under like huge amounts of snow that had had piled up on top of them. And so these four were found further away from from the fire and from those initial bodies. But they were found towards like a ravine. And the ravine potentially could uh, protect them a little bit from the wind that was clearly uh, happening on that on that bad weather in that night. And These four were better dressed than all the others and it's potentially possible that they had taken some of the clothes from the other people that had died. Uh, So maybe they had lived a bit longer and had taken some of these clothes and, and put them on to try and stay warm. And they had clearly in this group of four been trying to form an area that would keep them warm. So there was evidence, you know, of digging into the snow. They'd put uh, like branches down underneath them to, to protect them from the snow layer, that kind of thing. So clearly there had been efforts to stay warm. But the odd thing with these four were that three of these bodies had some like odd injuries as well as obviously being frozen. A couple of them had crushed chests. So they're like all their ribs were broken and they'd been crushed. Uh, and some had skull fractures, uh, which were, were pretty intense. And they didn't have much impact on the skin. So it wasn't it wasn't very clear what had potentially made these injuries. They were also found near a stream. Um, so basically, obviously, at the time, they, what, the stream wasn't there. But as the, as the stream melted, uh, they were found in running water. And if you listen to true crime podcasts, you'll know that um, bodies in running water don't don't last very long. So uh, some of them had lost their, their soft tissue. Uh, and you hear about this a lot if you read about this, you know, some missing their eyes and their tongues and ugh, horrible things like that. But I think it's pretty clear that that was just uh, because of, of where they were. Yeah, so so at this point, all nine bodies have been found, all away from the tent, all in not adequate clothing for the weather. They'd all been frozen. They had like an odd array of injuries. They'd cut their way out of the tent. So it basically was like 
a whole lot of weird things had happened, you know. It's something that clearly the investigators and searchers came upon and were just like, I'm no, you know, I've no idea what happened here, basically. And I think that is what's really fueled discussion and theories as to what has happened. At the time, they did start an investigation, uh, and but that, again, was really vague and I think has really fueled uh, the conspiracy. So they, they basically concluded that the group had left their tent by choice and then died through a compelling natural force, is what they said. But there was no specific reasoning as to what that compelling natural force was. But I think essentially what they were trying to say was that they, they weren't murdered, so they didn't think that other people were involved uh, at the end of this investigation, but they did. Yeah, something had happened, basically, but they didn't know what. Uh, so, yeah, that definitely fueled speculation. So let's let's get into theories at this point then and try and yeah see see what what people think more more so than just a compelling natural force as to what happened. Initially and and the report eventually did rule this out but initially there was a lot of theories around the man the Manzi people potentially murdering them because they were on their land. And I think this was very a likely theory because of the prejudices that, that the people held at the time rather than any actual evidence. And like I said, it, it was ruled out by the investigation and it should be ruled out because there, there were no additional footprints found. The footprints of the people that were there, the fact that the local community was really, you know, like a peaceful area, like nothing like this had ever happened before. And they just didn't really have injuries that corresponded with uh, being murdered by anyone so i think it was pretty clearly ruled out that this wasn't it wasn't man man made uh this incident it, it, it was done through something else so like i said then a lot of conspiracy theories came out and they continue on to this day they're just literally everywhere uh every single thing i read basically gave a different theory as to what they think happened and a lot of them are a bit odd and so a few of these included things like like military testing and and radiation potentially doing something so they measured the radiation on the clothes of the people and a few of them registered quite high on the radiation spectrum but it does seem a bit odd because it wasn't that high it wasn't as high like high enough that it actually means anything and it was only some of their clothes that were, were radioactive, not others. So it just seems that if they were, you know, if they'd witnessed some kind of nuclear explosion or something, then all of them would be radioactive rather than just a few pieces of their clothes. But that is, yeah, something that people really cling on to in terms of thinking about what happened. Another one is they talk a lot about like, UFOs and alien abductions or even just like military missile testing and stuff like this like explosions that made them run and this was especially the UFO one it's based on one of their like photos so like I said this the they did do take loads of photos whilst they were on this hike and one of them kind of like it's basically like a black photo with like some dots on it and clearly when I look at it I just see 
like someone with their finger in front of the screen kind of thing or like a bit of like lens flare or something but if you really look at it maybe you can see it as a UFO (laughs) I don't know Uh, but yeah that really has fueled a lot of those odd odd theories and same with there's another another photo where it like kind of looks like there's like a really like yeti like man in the background but I think it's like just a leaf but (laughs) people have taken these photos and run with them which reminded me a lot actually of the Chris Creamers and Lausanne Froon episode I did a while ago because that I think the photos in that really fueled their mystery as well so basically people like looking at photos and trying to figure trying to figure out what happened through them but yeah in this case I don't I don't think it was very helpful Another one which is very prevalent, but which I'm not totally sure of, is is this concept of infrasonic waves. And this is, I read a good book, but then at the end it said, I think this was all because of infrasonic waves. And I was like, okay, kind of lost me at the end. But the theory is that these waves can be produced by a variety of things, usually man-made, and they can cause like discomfort and panic attacks and pain and... and basically like drive people crazy you know those things you hear about where they're like they play this noise and everyone goes insane that that type of theory and so they had this infrasonic wave and it basically made them flee their tents and run away and that kind of thing but to be honest I don't think to me none of these make sense and none of them really convince me I am always a fan of the simplest explanation being what what probably what happened and and to me these are all just very convoluted so i think realistically going on to the next set of theories is that something caused them to leave their tent something gave them some injuries whether in the tent or whether once they had reached the the forest area once they were down in the forest area because of of whatever caused them to leave it was very dark, very cold. They couldn't find their way back up to the tent. They attempted to survive, but it was just too cold. Siberia in the middle of winter just isn't the place to be without clothing. And and so they, they died from, from freezing, basically. That makes the most sense to me. The mystery, obviously, in terms of that theory is, right, okay, that all makes sense. But what made them flee the tent and what made them flee so far especially when they were experienced hikers they knew that leaving that tent in the state of dress that they were in and with little equipment they knew that that being in the tent was the best place for them so i think there's a couple of theories that make sense the first one is is winds or weather there was evidence that that night was really bad weather in terms of the the snowfall and the winds and there is evidence in that area of something called a catabatic wind and that is almost like like a hurricane feeling of wind where it it like to do with like pressures dropping and stuff and it could have the weather could have been so bad and they they could have been so scared at that point that they thought actually the tent's about to be destroyed like we must get out and we must get down to the tree line where where they can find shelter and i thought that was a bit odd because they didn't put their shoes on but then i was thinking maybe uh, like hiking boots take a while to put on don't they they're not like little shoes that you can slip on so i guess that makes sense that they didn't yeah to put them on so yeah wind or bad weather is one there and then one that i think is the most likely and that has been discussed and argued either way is an avalanche the 
concept of an avalanche, initially it was determined unlikely because the slope of the mountain they were on wasn't very steep. So there's like a certain degree of steepness that a slope needs to be in order to cause an avalanche. But And this mountain was, was deemed not to be that steep. And they thought when they got there, there wasn't any kind of clear evidence of... Uh, of, of an avalanche on the site they thought they would recognize it and there hadn't been any reports of, of avalanches in the area but to me an avalanche makes a lot of sense because if they if an avalanche had started or if they had felt one coming then they know i would think like how catastrophic avalanches could be and how essential it is to like one get out of there and two, get far enough away that you're away from the pile of snow that's falling down behind you. It it makes more sense to me that this this is the case and 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 would cause their actions. Again, the avalanche could have caused their injuries, or they could have got the injuries later on if they had been trying to build a shelter and then the shelter fell on them or something. So I think I think the injuries can be explained as well. The avalanche theory has been reinvestigated a few times and quite a bit recently. Uh, so it's been, and uh, yeah, it's being looked at very recently. So in 2015, a report looked into uh, this incident again, and it really highlighted that there was terrible weather that night, a lot of snowfall, a lot of, uh, yeah, things coming down. And what it also highlighted was that because they cut into the slope in order to put their tent up, then where they cut and how they cut potentially could have like disrupted the snow base, which could have meant that it destabilized the snow, the snow and the slope that they were on. So even though the slope wasn't that steep, if it's unstable and has been unsettled, then potentially that could still trigger an earthquake, uh, trigger an avalanche. I said earthquake because more recently in 2020, and the articles for this actually came out very recently in 2021, some researchers were watching Frozen, the movie, and they were very impressed with how like the snow looked in, in the movie. And they thought, you know, it looked very lifelike. And so they actually contacted the animators of Frozen and said, hey, like, how did you make your snow look so good? I I want to reuse that to run some scenarios to to try and understand what could have happened in terms of avalanche on this uh, on this mountain, and so they took that animation and that mechanism and they and they reused it to do different avalanche simulations to see whether the avalanche could have happened, to see what kind of injuries potentially the avalanche could have caused, and and yet yeah, put everything in it like that. And what it did look at, it looked at potentially how. An earthquake, which may have happened, could lead to an, av an avalanche and it may not lead to one straight away, but it may destabilize it as well. So you've got potentially destabilization from an earthquake. You've got potentially destabilization from the cutting into the, the slope. And then they specifically looked at these types of avalanches called slab avalanches, which is basically where like one big slab of snow falls rather than like a huge area of avalanche uh, a huge area of snow coming down and the theory that they were able to model is that this slab avalanche could have come down could have been very localized to where they were and it could have hit the tent at such force that it could have caused some of the injuries that we've seen and those injuries may not have been fatal at that point 
so they basically like mocked it all up and shown how it could have all happened. So that was it was super fascinating. And to me, it just makes the most sense. I mean, they're on a mountain in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> like clearly, like weather or snow are, are the two things that make that make sense to me. And I, and I think they're the most likely things that happened. The article for that study is actually available online. It's really worth a, a read. It gets very technical later on, but the first half of it is, yeah, really interesting to understand, like, they kind of like show the different mechanisms of the tent and the slope and everything like that. So it's definitely worth, uh, I'll put the link in the references. It's definitely worth having a read. Yeah, a bit of an, an odd, obviously an odd case, obviously still a mystery. Similar to MH370, we will never have a definitive answer, but I think we're getting closer to the the story and, and the story that makes sense if you do further read into this, there is like so much information out there on it and goes through like each person and their all of their like specific injuries and, and where they were hit and the color of their skin and like when they were dead and just everything like that. And I just, I don't know, to me, I just think you've got to take a step back, you know, and, and look at kind of the bigger picture of what happened. Clearly, it was a real tragic case because they you know, something scary enough happened that they had to leave their tents and then it's just tragic that they couldn't find their way back and it was so cold and they just couldn't survive. So, yeah, to me, not the most mysterious, but very tragic. I was trying to think about what we learned because I like to do what we learned at the end of these to, you know, give us a bit of pep for the day. But this is like a story that was a very long time ago, 1959. I think... Hiking has changed so much since then. And we talked about this in some of our other episodes. It's all the basics of letting people know where you were, which is obviously what they had done, but they just had no way of communicating, did they, once they were out. Potentially now we would have the ability to communicate. We would potentially know more about the weather and what to expect and, and all of that type of thing. So I think things have moved on so much from this that it's hard to specify exactly what we did learn. But I think... One of the main things is when the investigations go into these types of things, it's very important to be very transparent and it's very important to not give odd statements as to why it happened because it will just fuel however many thousands of conspiracy theories that we have uh, rolling around today. In terms of references, I did read a good book. It's called Dead Mountain, The Untold True Story of the Dyatlov Pass Incident by Johnny Iker. And like I said, really good read. It's um, very easy to read, quick, interesting. He retraces their steps. So he goes to Russia and retraces their steps through what it looks like today, which was really fascinating. And he has lots of love photos and the diaries and that kind of thing in there. So it is definitely worth a read. Like I say, his theory at the end is infrasonic waves, but it's only like the last chapter that he talks about it. So, um, and, and maybe he will convince you. Maybe I'm just got it all wrong maybe you need to read that book and you'll decide that it is infrasonic waves i don't know but yeah worth a read if you want to go into this a little bit more um and i'll pop uh, some yeah other interesting articles uh, in the references as well so thank you very much for listening please do follow uh subscribe whatever it the button says on whatever you're listening on and please do i want to know what you think about this whether you agree with me do you think it was weather and avalanches or do you agree with other people and you think it's ufos and yetis 
come and tell me. Uh, I'm always up for debate and I'm always happy to uh, be informed if I've missed anything. So please do come and chat. Uh, you can email me at whenitgoeswrongpod at gmail.com or you can find me over on Instagram at whenitgoeswrongpod. Uh, and yes, it would be lovely to speak to you there.